Blog Talk Radio. Everybody, welcome to another edition of Rungren Radio. I'm here with my co-host Cruzamel. How are you doing tonight? Hey, Doug. Good evening to you. You doing all right? I'm doing just dandy. And yourself? I'm doing great. I just got through seeing Todd five times in about two weeks. I'm a little nice. tired, but other than that, good times. Hate you that it's pro- over. You probably know all the words better than he does now. Yeah, I think I could get up there and sing them. Wouldn't be a good <laughs> show, but I could do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, you know... I was fortunate enough to have him come to my part, my neck of the woods, I guess, if you will, for this tour, the South, and hit a bunch of shows. And now he's left. Now all the folks over in Baltimore tonight, and people in Chicago and New York, they're going to get died for a while. It's only fair. I guess. Yeah, no, it was. It was. It's been a great time having Todd in the South. Yeah, I know. Your neck of the woods, Texas, is still looking out for him, and um, the well, West Coast. Said- those days will happen. Just a matter of time. Probably sometime this summer, I'm guessing. I hope. Oof. I'm hoping. But anyway, people do still have eight more chances to go see Todd and the the guys and the girl. Um, and they can go to TR Connection or MySpace.com forward slash Todd Rundgren Music or Hot Toddies and get all the details uh, where you can go see Todd. There you go. We know we got the big Baltimore show tonight, so we're sorry those people aren't able to listen and participate in the chat, but we know our friends Mike Bender's there and Mindy's there and all kind of folks. We're there in spirit. <laughs> yep. Wish we could be there with you. So speaking of Todd Giggs and speaking of the future. Tell us. Tell us. <laughs> oh, I'm not going that far. I will say this. Hold Labor Day weekend, people. We've said it before. We'll say it again. If you do not, you will live to regret it. Do not make plans for Labor Day weekend. Rundgren Radio Birthday Bash 2 will happen Labor Day weekend. I'm pretty confident. And it's going to be large and in charge, just like last time. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be pretty big. Yeah, well, actually, it was, I don't know what you call it big last time. It depends on what you're talking about. The crowd obviously wasn't because we had it limited to a small crowd. It was very nice. But you know what we mean. It's going well, to be I off. do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One I know I'm, I haven't made any plans for Labor Day weekend, so I'm, I'm keeping it open myself. Well, it would be good if, you know, the co-host of Runner Radio would be at the Runner Radio birthday bash. I, I sort of figured that. Yeah, yeah, so try not to make any plans there. I canceled my world tour just for that. Well, yeah. Speaking of small crowds, I guess it wasn't that small, but I went to the Nashville gig Easter Sunday night. And it's about 400 or so people, and it was sold out. They had to add a couple rows, as a matter of fact, in the front. And it was packed out. Kind of a weird venue. It, it was a movie theater. They actually showed a movie that day in there. And then Todd and the gang loaded in about 4.30, and they ended up doing a, you know, a little sound check action and a gig. And it was it was a fun, you know, fun and good show. Nobody stood up until the last two songs. It just really wasn't that kind of place, I guess. And uh, it was really tight, though. You know, just like a movie theater, if you can imagine, except no screen. It was a stage. Plenty of room for the band to play around. And, and nobody uh, threw any popcorn at the band, huh? 
No popcorn stone at the band. They did sell popcorn there, though. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yep. But it did was they sell any merch there? There was merch there. As a matter of fact, the arena shirts were there, and they actually had CDs, which is good because, you know, I think for the early on for the shows they didn't have them, but I saw several people walking out with them. And what I'm starting to notice these shows uh, is that some people, you know, of course, you always always have the ones that are upset that he doesn't play the ballads or whatever. But I think a lot of people are just so impressed with the guitar and how great the band is that they buy the CD when they leave. And there were several people walking out with those Chasms DVDs for sale. I did mention, I think, last week on the show that Michelle had some old T-shirts, but she hasn't put those out, so I don't know what they're going to do with those. There were some liars and um, Have a Gun Will Travel, but I did notice they weren't for sale. Um, as a matter of fact, the arena shirts are a real good deal right now. They're only 25 bucks, so they're pretty much on sale on their way out because they are going to bring in some new things eventually. One of those I do know about is a female shirt because, you know, the arena shirt, girls can wear it, but it's not really that feminine. So Michelle has worked on creating a ladies' form-fitting, I guess, T-shirt of some sort that's going to have something to do along the lines of the something anything flower. That oh, we're good! That's pretty. Yeah, that'll of course be special for Jody and Richie, since <laughs> yeah. that was their wedding colors in Philadelphia. Yeah. For the last Rungan Radio gig. Yeah. Those are going to be shirts for females, like the the ladies' cut. That's it. Oh, okay. Something like that. And then the men are going to have to wait till summer, she said. Uh-oh, I wonder what that's going to be. Or they could buy the arena shirt, of course. And so can ladies. I mean, it's not, you know, they don't discriminate. It's just not very feminine, this big, gigantic arena dude in his underwear, you know. <laughs> Maybe some girls like that. Perhaps they do. Yeah. If they do, they got a choice of black and red. Okay. I know right. I got a black one. I don't have a red one, but uh, you know I, I may see another show, so you just never. Yeah, I got the red one when I was at Todd Stock. I like it. It's a nice shirt. It's kind of cool. I like the material. It's one of those like um, I don't know, organic tees almost. All right, yeah. so here we go. We got the DePaul University lecture that Todd Rundgren did, thanks to Ken Owen. That show has been played on Rundgren Radio. If you missed it, we did it on Friday sometime in the afternoon. A replay of that. That was a Tuesday night lecture at the school there. And we also interviewed Ken for about, I don't know, eight to ten minutes or so about how it went down, what it was like for him, etc. He's a big Todd fan, obviously. goes back way, 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 way back. So that was a good show, I thought, talking to him and a good show listening to him and the crowd interview Todd Rundgren. Mm-hmm. So just go to the archives and check it out on RungrenRadio.com if you missed it. It is a full two-hour show, and it goes a little bit past two hours, actually. It's about two hours and ten minutes. So there's uh, lots of Todd talking in that show. Good. He good. was on a roll. Check it out. Check yeah, it. it's good stuff. I hear, <clears throat> I saw on the TR Connection, I think it was Guy, yeah, <clears throat> who is our friend MJ, Mm-hmm. Uh, mentioned that, that uh, Todd and the Naz were mentioned in Mojo Magazine once again. Nice. Uh, the April issue, I believe. Yes, page 67 of the April issue. And that's, you know, the second time this year Todd's been in Mojo. There was a great article, of course, you know, a, a previous issue that most people know about. That's a great magazine, by the way. And they've done some great Todd articles over the years. So that's not a big article, but, you know, it's on a timeline type thing. 
uh, on the page 67 there, but it's still a mention, which can't hurt. And definitely worth checking out. I'm going to look at it when I can find a copy of it. So, yeah, fun stuff. Good to hear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Next week on Rundgren Radio, we have Paul Myers. <laughs> this will be good. This will be good. He seems like a really nice guy, and uh, we'll be able to pick his brain. He'll probably be, be picking ours. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, he's uh, – I think he's kind of overwhelmed. I mean, Todd's career has been so long. Of course, Paul is writing a book about Todd's studio experience. It's not about Todd, not an autobiography type thing. It's a – it's all about recording and with bands and Todd recording with you know for his own work and Utopia. So it's going to be uh, different than what Billy James' book is, obviously, and it's going to be very thorough because he's interviewed Mark Farner, the XTC guys. Uh, he's got a buzz on uh, psychedelic furs. He hasn't talked to him yet, but he spent several days with Todd in Hawaii. Got tons of information from him. So it will include Todd Rundgren, of course. Uh, it's going to be something else. So this is this is authorized then. Oh yeah. Oh good. Well, you know, it doesn't. You know, if it's not a, it's not about Todd's necessarily about his life. You know, from growing up to a kid and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And his personal business, it's studio stuff. So I guess you can. Well, if you have to get it authorized, I guess it's more like uh, it's been blessed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With a big banana leaf and a lady with a with funny Hawaiian words. Who knows? Yeah, a book blessing. Yeah. There you go. So that's uh, that's next week. Next Tuesday night, eight thirty, as always. We're on then. Tonight's guest, which you haven't even mentioned yet, Cruiser Mel. It's not my job, man. It's not. Why? Well, I, I, I was waiting for you to get to that. Okay. Well, you know, nobody officially deemed it my job. I'm it could be yours. It could be mine. Okay. But tonight we have two guests, which makes this an unusual and unique show. Jim Colgrove, who was with Great Speckled Bird for a while and was part of the album Something Anything, one of Todd's most popular, arguably the most popular album of his, from a public perspective. And he was on the song Piss Aaron. So we will be talking to him about that experience and some other things that he has been doing. Yeah, he has he has quite a little resume going, in case you guys haven't heard of him. Uh, we're going to find out a little bit more here shortly. And, yeah, and also, we got John Holbrook on tonight, who is the funny voice, I guess you would describe it as funny, interesting, whatever, on singing in the glass guitar on Utopia's Raw album. He also engineered that album. He also engineered or helped engineer, I'm not sure exactly what he did, on one of the Roger Powell solo albums. I believe it was Air Pocket, and we'll be getting into that with him, of course, as part of the conversation. So he goes way back. I think he even toured with Utopia, you know, as the road engineer, I guess, if you will, you know, doing sound and that type of thing. So. He should have plenty of good stories. He was uh, recommended to us, as a matter of fact, by somebody who has recommended some really good guests in the past. So John Holbrook will be one. Jim Cogrove will be the other. And we'll just figure things out. Okay. What do you think? How we doing? We're doing good. Okay. Not bad, huh? <laughs> All right. So 
Jim is about to call in. Before he does, let's take a commercial break. We'll be right back. You're listening to RonGreenRadio.com. Okay, Roger, yours is going to be kind of long. You might want to write it down. What do you want me to say? (laughs) This is Roger Powell. I will jump on stage at a Rungren Radio Todd gig and play seven rays. Hi, this is Roger Powell. Forget about it. This is Eric Gardner. You're listening to RundgrenRadio.com. All right, everybody. That's our promos. You're listening to RundgrenRadio.com. If you didn't catch it, that was Roger Powell, Eric Gardner. Some fun clips there. We are here now live with Jim Colgrove. Jim, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Doing well. Got my co-host Cruiser Mail here with me. She says hello. Hi, Jim. I do. Hiya. Hiya. Hiya, hiya. Oh. <laughs> All right. So you are in Texas, is that right? Yes, sir. I'm in Fort Worth, Texas. Been nice. here for Been here for about 35 years now. Wow. Yeah, well, Cruiser Mail lives in Dallas, Texas. Yeah, you can probably see me waving from here. Who knows? Oh, that's, yeah, you, that's probably it. Yeah, you live over on the east side of Fort Worth, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. Well, this will be good because I'm from Alabama, so we've got the Alabama-Texas thing going. You'll be able, we'll be able to understand each other. We won't need any interpreters. I'm sure. So, that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. No. So, Jim, I'm so glad that you came on the show. Why don't you start off by telling us what you're doing currently? Uh, currently, I'm, I have a, a group called Lost Country that uh, performs and records. We just uh, last week uh, have a new record out, a new CD was issued. Uh, mostly I do that. I do a lot of uh, producing as well. That's pretty much what I'm doing currently. Well, you're, you sound kind of busy. Actually, I was looking at your, your uh, I guess it would be your discography on your website, thecoolgroove.com. And it just goes on and on and on and on. And so I, I see yeah. you've done some work with the uh, the Juke Jumpers. You were a founding member of that? The Juke Jumpers, yes. I was a founding member of that band, I guess, uh, 1977 is when that band started playing. It lasted for about 17 years, believe it or not. Yeah. And you were inducted into Buddy Magazine's Texas Tornadoes. Tell us a little bit about that. Um I understand what it is being from Texas, but some other people may not realize what a big deal that is. Well, Buddy Magazine uh, is a magazine that was started in Dallas that dedicated, I guess, named after Buddy Holly, and it was dedicated to rock and roll music and journalism around surrounding rock and roll music. Uh, I guess sometime back in the 70s, they they decided to start sort of like a Texas... um, Hall of Fame for guitar players, since guitar playing guitar players from Texas were pretty important in history of rock and roll and jazz and blues and just about everything else you can imagine. And uh, they started it and, and called it uh, Texas Tornadoes, and they inducted a certain number of guitarists every year 
into that uh, hall, and then they ex later on they expanded it to include other instrumentalists as well. And it still goes on. Very nice. Hey, I noticed on your uh, website too that you got Andy Smart on there. What's your relationship with him? How did that How did that come about? He will be on your site. Well, Andy Smart and I started playing music together in 1966, early 1966. Andy's mother and my sister went to high school together, and uh, then we later on met uh, in, in, a, in music, and uh, we started playing together. And, and in 1967, we left Ohio together to join a band on the East Coast. And oh, yeah, you go way back. Of course, Indy Smart was on Todd's Run album and Ballard. Right. Yeah, so uh, is that is that how you ended up meeting Todd ultimately was through Indy Smart, or was that different uh, different situation? No, that's uh, that's really true. Uh, I'm, I met him through Indy because Indy, as you say, had been working with him. I, uh, Indy and I lived in New York City. We lived in Boston before we lived in New York, but then we lived in New York City for several years in the late 60s. And then in 1970... Indy and I rented a house together in in Woodstock, New York. That was during the time that we were we were both playing with uh, Enid Sylvia's band, Great Speckled Bird. And uh, as a result of of uh, us moving up there, Todd uh, spent a lot of time at that house. As a matter of fact, he he spent many time many nights sleeping there. Now, Great Speckled Bird, you were you were in that band though after Todd had produced their album. Is that right? I was in, yeah, I was in that band. I, I joined the band right after the LP that he produced, which came out on Ampex Records. I guess it was a Bearsville master. Yeah. But uh, I, I came in the band right after that record came out. I replaced Kenny Kalmuski. Mm -hmm. So how long did you play with them? How long did you stay in that band? Four years. Four years. From, 19, from 1970 to 1974. And you, you don't, uh, you have any idea what Amos Garrett's doing nowadays? Well, I assume he has a career. He, he's he's uh, continually puts out CDs and and uh, and is working and uh, works in Canada a lot and uh, tours Europe. Yeah. I assume he's still working. Still music, still in the music biz. All right, very oh, nice. Does. So, Indy Smart uh, and, and Todd, y'all obviously kind of roomed together, I guess, in a way. And then you ended up on the Something Anything album. For, with yes, I did. Saren. Yeah. How, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, as you know, that's a, a double LP, and I don't know exactly where every track on that LP was recorded, but I do, I do know he did some recording on it in, at the Bearsville studio, which was uh, in Bearsville, New York, which was just just a couple of miles out of town of Woodstock, and um, that, that's uh, that's where I went to uh, to record. Uh, Piss Aaron with him, and uh, I think Billy Mundy was the drummer on that session. Amos Garrett was a guitar player on the session, and I think Ben Keith played steel on that session. Hmm. And you played bass, correct? Uh, yeah, I played bass. That's correct. Okay. Okay. I played piano, I think. Anything in particular you remember about that recording and that album? And were were there any? Was it a time thing? Were there any opportunities to be on some other songs on there? It just ended up being that one because of that day, or how did that work out? Uh, that was uh, that was just specifically that that track is all, is all it. That Todd had in mind for that team of musicians to to work on together. Mm -hmm. That's that's all he, all he had in mind for us. I think mm -hmm. Andy might have been out of town at that particular time. So Piss Aaron was the song. After that album was released, obviously it became a, became a pretty big 
you know, a pretty big album, obviously, for Todd, probably he's commercially his most successful. Right, uh, that's what I understand. Yeah, yeah, so do you happen to recall <laughs> when, after that album came out, Todd decided to go in a totally different direction with The Wizard of True Star? Were you uh, interested in that kind of music? Were you paying attention to Todd's career back then? Did, did you have any thoughts on that? Well, I was aware of what he was doing, but uh, really that's the only time uh, that, that he and I had really had an opportunity to work together in the studio was that particular track, and I, I really don't know much about the music that he was recording after that, to be honest with you. Yeah, okay, no problem. So what um, what's in your what's in your future? What other things are you going to be doing now? That, you know, you're still playing. What uh, you got some upcoming gigs or anything? Any kind of music coming out people need to know about? Well, uh, as, as I said, we do have a new a new CD which is out and it's available worldwide on Amazon.com. Oh, matter of fact, all Lost Country records are available on Amazon.com, and uh, we continue to perform. We play gigs here and there, wherever they'll have us. <laughs> We what still type play. What type of music is that? Oh well, it's kind of in, uh, been characterized as, as country rock or uh, roots music or Americana, what, oh. whatever you want to whatever you want to call it. Uh huh. mainly play in Texas or? We mostly play in Texas. Yeah, we don't really travel on the road. How many people are in the band? Six people. Um, steel guitar player who also plays. Uh, regular guitar. Uh, my wife, Susan, who plays guitar and sings, I play guitar. Um, our bass player is a, also is a guitarist. We switch guitars around a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, keyboard and drums. So it's six, six people. And where can people find out about uh, your future gigs? Um, on our website, lostcountry.com. All right. Well, do you when you were recording the uh, Piss Aaron back in the day, did do you remember how much uh, did Todd give you how much creative control? Or was it pretty much set in stone? You came in, you knew what to do, and you just knocked oh it no, out? it was uh, it, it was very very free. It was just uh, Todd, as I said, Todd played piano on it, and uh, and I think we probably ran it through once or twice and and recorded it. It, was, it wasn't anything uh, that we were told to play. Todd just played. The groove on the piano, and we just kind of followed him. Oh yeah, that's it, huh? Kind of a funny song too. <laughs> it's a funny song. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's supposed to. I think it's something to do with uh, one of his high school or grade school friends or something. Yeah. Well, he, he also makes reference to uh, Chuck Biscuits in there. I don't know if you're familiar with the lyrics or not, but uh, Chuck Biscuits was a was a reference to the underground comic character Hungry Chuck Biscuits. But that was also the name of the band that uh, Indy and I had with Jeffrey Gutchin that recorded for Bezerra called Hungry Chuck. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I don't know if you knew that or not. No, I did not. That all ties in, huh? Chuck B. Yeah, it does. So did you have any uh, meetings with Albert Grossman back then? Paul Fishkin and those guys? uh, Yeah, I knew. Certainly I knew Albert. Mm -hmm. I saw Albert pretty routinely. In town, used to have breakfast with him from time to time, and and I uh, had some business affiliations with him as well. Mm-hmm. Albert was an interesting guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we always get different kind of um, interesting comments about Albert. Yeah, well, I'm well, sure. <laughs> yeah, can you elaborate a little bit why it was interesting? Well, Albert was, uh, as you know, Albert was very successful in the music business, and he had uh, he had a lot of power and a lot of control over things. So uh, 
Albert had a tendency to uh, get his way about a lot of a lot of things that he wanted. So it was it, it, he could be difficult to deal with, but at the same time he was a kind of a nice guy if you actually got to know him. Mm-hmm. So when he got his way, you're talking about with um, you know with the with the musicians or, or in the business world more. Well, both ways. Uh, he he expected certain things to be done if he thought that it was a good idea. Uh, he kind of expected things to get done a certain way, and if you didn't do them that way, he was always disappointed. You know, he he might have been well. I, I don't. He didn't like it particularly well, so he might not have put his heart behind it mm-hmm. as a project if if he was disappointed in you. So it was just kind of a risk you kind of ran with him. Speaking of Bears Record and Record Companies, how many different record companies have, have you worked with? You think in your career? Uh, well, uh, that's a good question because, I mean, I've done a lot of recording sessions, mm-hmm. and of course, most of those sessions would have been with with different labels. But I was not directly affiliated with the labels. I would just get paid out of a studio budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a as an artist, uh, I, I was associated with a couple labels in Ohio before I left Ohio. And then I was associated with Atlantic and Bell as an artist in New York, and and with Bearsville as an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, it was more independent labels like like uh, Amazing Records here in, in uh, Fort Worth and and that sort of thing. So Lost Country, are y'all um, indie? Or are you on a label? We're in, it's independent. It's cool Groove Records. Cool Groove Records, I got you. Coolgroove.com. Okay, makes sense. Yeah, I know it's kind of a weird question, and, and I mean to put you on the spot with how many, but we always notice, you know, the musicians. We have a lot of them on the shows that there's, they never really seem to stick with the same record company, Todd included. And it's kind of always fun to look at the business side of it. And I know Albert was definitely, um, you know, a big figure in Todd's career and a lot of other people's uh, career back in the day, and. Definitely. Well, you know, staying staying with a record company uh, is, is difficult to do because you're only as good as your as your last record sales. Yep, that's all that matters to them, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, it's changing. Bottom line. Yeah, it's changing so much now. You know, indie and independent. You know, it wasn't really. Uh, well, no, independents independents have always been there, mm-hmm. but uh, independents don't have have all the money and all the power in the world either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've got more avenues now for marketing and promotion and things than they probably did. You know, I'm sure they did back in the day. So it has changed a lot. You know, the record. Well, I don't know. I was in the independent record business when I was 19 years old. I was yeah. producing records in Nashville in wow. 1961. How did you market them? How the records. The, yeah. The, the records that I, uh, the company the company was distributed by King Records. Okay. Mm-hmm. King Records in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. They had a big distri- distribution chain. Hmm. And that is a lot of independent distribution. Let Things sure have changed a lot, though, over the years. That's you know, it's been been a lot, a lot different ever since the um, ability to burn CDs, etc. The market's kind of changed a lot, and I don't know how active you guys are on on some of those like MySpace and some of these sites where people put their music and and uh, sell the downloads and whatnot. Do y'all do any of that? Well, we don't do any of that, but I mean, we have a. You can find us on MySpace and listen to our music there. Oh yeah, okay. It's there. Very good. Very if you nice. got a, if you got a stream stream recorder, you can record them off the air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's so wrong. <laughs> That's not right. Yeah. <laughs> it is what it is. What you know? What can I say? Yep. Were you uh, okay? I noticed uh, 
quite a sim- similarity between your name, Colgrove, and Cool Groove Records. Is did you found that record company? Well, I, yes, I own the record company. Oh, but, okay. Uh, okay, uh, and it, do you have any other yeah, artists that you have besides Lost Country? Uh, well, we've done some reissues. We we reissued uh, some Jew Jumper records that were previously only available on LP. And uh, last year I issued a couple of records on some friends of mine, a guy named Wes Race and uh, a fellow named Larry Stone. So there's a few other things on it besides just my records. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. But the name, if you're wondering where the name Cool Groove came from, it is a play on my name. But uh, T-Bone Burnett gave me that name um, about 30 years ago. Oh, okay. <laughs> he decided it would be easier to call me that than Colgrove. <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. Hey, cool groove. How you doing? I'll re- I'll say I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, Jim, we really appreciate you being on, man. We appreciate you answering our questions for you. Hey. And uh, we'll get everybody check out lostcountry.com. I appreciate it. Sure right, enjoyed man. it. Okay. Hey, thanks a lot. Thank you, You bet Sam. you're, talk- Thank you're right. welcome. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. That's Jim Colgrove. Great Speckled Bird, Lost Country, was on Todd's album, doing Piss Aaron, etc. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Greg Hawks, and you're listening to Run Run Radio. I don't know what that cologne is, but it's working like a charm. All right, everybody, this is Mel. Doug decided to take a little break, but that was the cool groove, Jim Colgrove. That was pretty cool, wasn't it? And now we're moving to part two of our show tonight. We've got John Holbrook. Uh, John was the engineer on Raw. He's got several Grammys, some gold and platinum records. You guys are going to be... Really, really, you're going to love that you're listening to this show, you lucky people. John, is that you? I'm here. Hey, welcome to the show. I'm glad you made it. Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah. Well, why don't we jump on in? Doug's going to be joining us back here in a few minutes. He's just taking a quick little break. Um, okay. Tell us what you've been doing most recently. Uh, well, I I suppose that what I've been doing the most is mixing. Um, I, you know, I still do some some uh, recording, but um, I've been mixing for quite a few people. Uh, some of the more recent projects. Um, uh, there's a guy uh, that I work with, Adam Schlesinger, who has a band called Fountains of Wayne. Mm-hmm. I've been working been working with them, and uh, he also did a side project recently uh, called Tinted Windows, which is just coming out. Uh, kind of a pop, power pop thing. And, um, uh, you know, I've been, over the years, I've been, recent years, I've, I've done a, a, quite a lot of records with um, Brian Setzer and the big band, the Brian Setzer Orchestra. Um, so a variety of things, you know. Yeah. Still, still, we're still, so we're still in there trying. <laughs> you really, you're a busy guy, apparently. I was looking at your resume, and it just kept going and going, and I know that... Uh, You've done some work with Rufus Wainwright, who is a favorite of several of our listeners. You want to tell us a little bit about working with him? 
uh, yeah, it was actually a sort of um, a brief period. It was part of when he was, you know, um, uh, making that. Uh, it was like I guess it was like a double album, not a double album, but a sort of a suite of albums. And uh, the one, the first one that came out, I think, it was called Want One. But we did. Uh, this was when Bearsville Studios was still open. It's now now no longer with us, but when Bearsville was still open. Um, they came up, Rufus came up, and um, we spent about, I suppose it must have been about a week, or maybe it was a couple of weeks, um, you know, recording, doing tracks uh, uh, in the big studio at Bearsville. And um, so quite a few of the tunes uh, on that One One and One Two album um, would have been recorded there. So I was basically just the engineer, and um, Marius DeFries was the uh, producer on that one. Mm-hmm. Hey, you, so. you bring up an interesting point. Explain to people like me who don't know any different, yeah. what's the difference between the engineer on a, on a record and the producer on a record? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, sometimes it's the same guy. It, it, it happens quite a lot that it's the same guy. But, the, the, you know, the role, the, the traditional role is, is kind of distinct. The engineer is dealing with the technical end of things, making sure it's all going down, being recorded properly, that the right mics are put in the right place, uh, and the, uh, you know, just basically taking, holding down the technical end where the producer is more the, uh, you know, uh, should we say, a supporter of the artist, uh, um, helping them get what they, the best performance they can get, and, and also sort of, I guess, uh, guiding the thing along, coaching the whole thing along. Um, you know, did the, there are many sort of different styles of producing. Some people are very hands-on. Some people just sort of sit sit in the back and say, "Great guys, keep going," you know. <laughs> um, so it's a producer is more of a more like the movie has a, a director. He's, you know, he's he's more sort of like getting trying to get the best performance out of the uh, people involved. You know, mm-hmm. um, more on a musical and and sort of emotional level rather than the technical level. You know. Okay, so then the producer and the engineer uh, interface with each other. Exactly, because they're usually the guys sitting in the control room, and uh, and you know the producer might say, well, I think you know we need a, to uh, punch up this guitar sound a little bit or something, and you know the, so the engineer will then hopefully know which knob to turn to make the producer happy, you know. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sure. All right. Well, who? I, well, I I I'm going to just throw out some names of some of the people. Okay worked with, which I think yep. is going to surprise some of our listeners. Uh, yep. You've worked with Natalie Merchant and yep. the Isley Brothers. Yeah. Yep. And Leanne Rimes. Uh, briefly, think. yeah, yeah. That was like a one-off, um, one, like just one tune that we worked on for a uh, Elton John project. But yeah, yeah. Uh, she's on my resume, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you've got <laughs> impressive names there. Who Who have been amongst your favorite to work with? Um, oh, geez, well, yeah, that's hard to pick, hard to Don't pick. Don't worry, they're I'm... not listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I have to say that they all had their moments, you know, um, and I think that just, you know, it was like working on records that turned out to be successful, whether whether um, commercially or, or artistically, you know, for me, it's the process is, is the is the reward, you know, it's, it's, 
um, getting to work with talented people and um, and helping them, you know, get what they want to get. That's kind of what what I do. Um, you know, I could I could pick out. I guess working with the Isley Brothers was a big um, sort of stepping stone in my in my development. You know, they were they were the, probably the biggest act um, that I had worked with at that point up to that point. Um, and we did pretty good, you know. I, I did three albums with the Isaac Brothers that all went platinum. So, um, and I, you know, how much of that was due to me is really debatable. <laughs> but, uh, but at least we, you know, we got it recorded and uh, and uh, it worked. But uh, so that was a big, big thing. And then I think um, uh, I was going to say it's funny. It's a funny thing, but I was going to say well, the first time that I met and worked with uh, Mick Ronson was was an interesting. Uh, moment, I thought, and he he ended up living in Woodstock, you know, for a while um, when I was still living in Woodstock. So we we got to work together on a few things, and um, and of course Todd. I mean, what can I say? You know, he was uh, I was kind of in awe when I was starting out. You know, it was sort of Todd was a big a big star, so it was kind of uh, awesome to to get to work with him. Oh, do you want to you want to go ahead and jump on into the the Todd and Utopia business? <laughs> I, want, I I'm curious to know how you got hooked up at Bearsville Studios to begin with. Well, that I can tell you that um, some of your listeners probably um, aware of a character named Monsieur Frog, M Frog, um, and he was a, uh, a French gentleman who I had actually hooked up with in Europe before I, before we came over here. To the states, um, I'm from England, but he was from from France, and somehow we ended up in a band together in uh, Europe. And um, he ended up uh, uh, marrying over here and moving over here, and he moved. It just so happened he moved to Woodstock, and kind of stumbled into uh, Todd and and Albert Grossman, who was managing, you know, and owned uh, Bearsville Records. And so uh, he actually was the first. You know, he was the one who who made the connection and then started in the first Utopia with Todd. Before I got there, um, they had the, uh, the Sales Brothers uh-huh. and to- and Todd and M Frog, and I believe that was it. And you know, his M Frog thing was the synthesizer, and he he you know processing the uh, various sounds with the synthesizer. But anyway, so he once he got that going, he called me out and said, "You got to come over here. There's all this stuff going on." You know. And so he persuaded Bearsville to pay for me to to, to come over, and then uh, uh, you know I started to uh, go on the road with them as a, a sound you know front of house sound mixer. And uh, so actually that was my introduction to uh, the states. Really was uh, uh, touring around in that would have been the mid seventies. So that was with uh, Utopia. And that was with the second second version of Utopia, which had like, which was the big one, you know, with uh, um, Ralph Shuckett and and John Siegler and uh, Moogie Klingman. And M Frog was still in the in the picture, and it was very complicated because he he, uh, he wanted to be able to process any one of the musicians at any time. So we had, besides the regular microphone setup for the stage, we had this sort of Rat's nest, the wires that had to connect everyone back to M Frog. <laughs> so it oh, was like, okay. it was technically it was like a little bit of a, 
uh, mess, but um, but it was it was interesting, and um, I did that. You know, I, I toured um, uh, with Todd with Utopia up until somewhere around. I think bef- you know, I think I recorded the Raw album, but I don't think I went out on the tour after it. I think at that point I I was wanted to stay in the studio, um, but. Um, but anyway, so it was M Frog was the the catalyst that got me over here and and uh, hooked up with Todd. And then I, you know I also um, in between tours, uh, you know I ended up helping Todd in the studio in his studio, his you know private studio, um, on quite a few of the projects that that were done there. So all in all, I spent spent uh, quite a few hours, you know. Uh, with the man, it's funny because don't, we don't really stay in touch. We're not. I don't. I don't. I haven't spoken to him much in in a while. I did see him uh, recently at a show uh, near where I live in uh, Albany, New York. Um, some it was cut like a couple of years ago, I think. Well, he's going but, to be uh, in New York City uh, this either Thursday and Friday or Friday and Saturday. I can't recall. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, check him out. <laughs> I'm, I, unfortunately, I have a schedule, and I think I'm I'm, I'm probably. Books those days, but uh, oh, that's bad. but uh, but anyway, so that was the '70s for me. It was uh, a lot of touring with Utopia and uh, and working in Todd's studio. Wow, things um, could be worse, couldn't they? That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And, okay. you know, we got to work. It wasn't just uh, you know we did record Utopia stuff, but I also got to work on some of the other projects like Steve Hillage and um, uh, gosh, who else? There was there was a few other people that he, Todd produced, you know, that uh, that I was around for. But uh, anyway, so that was that was really the beginning for me. Okay, okay. Well, I want to play just a quick little clip uh, from Sing Ring, and then we got some questions about that. And we've already got some callers in the queue, so I hope you're ready to take some questions. Sure, absolutely. Okay, bear with me. Hold on, about forty-five seconds. Okay. This is an electrified fairy tale. If you've never heard of an electrified fairy tale, just picture little fairies with wee tiny electric guitars. Once upon a time, in a land not far from here, there was a place called Harmony. Everyone in Harmony was happy, and this joie de vivre was guarded by the invisible patron, the muse Singering. But jealous forces, and there are always jealous forces in such tales, have conspired to capture the spirit imprisoning it in a chest with four keys and casting the keys to the four corners of the earth so that only four particularly brave and talented individuals might retrieve them. It is here that our story begins. <laughs> oh, gee, who is that voice? <laughs> well, that was me. <laughs> oh, gosh. You inhale some, some helium before that? <laughs> yeah, well, it, um... You know, now in those days with uh, the old-fashioned tape recorders, it was quite easy to slow them down and speed them up. So, uh, so when we recorded that, you know, we just run the t- tape machine rather slow. Then when you play it back, it, it, it you know, it becomes a bit more chipmunk. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, it was funny because you know I was just thinking about this uh, uh, today when I before I got on here and and. Uh, uh, you know, my kids, I have kids now, and uh, they're into uh, this writer, Terry Pratchett. I don't know if anybody knows that. Uh, he's written a lot of um, sort of fantasy kind of books. 
But one of his uh, series is about the wee free men, which who are like they're little sort of aggressive little blue picks, a Scottish sort of Scottish sort of uh, uh, pixies, and right. uh, and it's funny because they're they're kind of like the, the character, if you wish, uh, on this uh, on the singer thing is is you could think of it as sort of being one of the wee free men. Um, sort of slightly sort of uh, uh, aggressive, <laughs> obnoxious little tiny guy with a <laughs> with a you know with an attitude. Yeah, a little um, and syndrome or something. Yeah. <laughs> but how anyway, you, how did that come about? That you were the voice of the n- narrator for better. You know, I I don't remember exactly. I mean, obviously we were in the studio recording it, and Todd had this thing written, and and. You know, who knows? I might have been looking at it one day. You know, we're looking at the lyrics and and doing a sort of Scottish, a sort of fake, rather bad Scottish accent. Um, that might have been a Todd. Todd might. I can't remember, but um, you'd have to ask Todd if he remembers. But um, Are you I think it was just one. It's one of those things. <laughs> it was one of those things. You know, like that happened in the studio. Like, well, why don't you try? You know. And uh, so probably they just sort of stuck me on the microphone and, and I, I did it. Of course, the thing is, when you do that, uh, the speed var- variation thing, you've got to, if, you, if it's going to be sped up, you've got to do it slowly. So if you heard it at, at the speed at which I actually did it, it would probably be, this is an electrified fairy tale. I'd have to have, you'd have to do it like really slow, you know. Uh-huh. So, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure that like, I couldn't get through more than like a few sentences without breaking breaking up. So probably there was a lot of edits involved to get rid of all the laughter, you know. Uh huh. <laughs> but um. Well, it is, it is a fun, funny little voice. I think Doug described it as silly earlier on in the show. But silly, yeah. Well, that wasn't silly. Definitely a silly element. And that's me. I'm you know that's me all over. I'm the silly one, you know. Mm, okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, John, let's see if we can take a caller. This this person's been on hold for quite a while. Okay. All right, 908. Uh, oh, hang on. I'm trying to get you, 908. Uh-oh. Okay, 908, are you there? Yes, we're here. Hello. Who's that? Sounds, Hello. Yes, that we're here. like Janice. Is that yeah, Janice? That would be. <laughs> hey, Janice. Hello, Johnny. <laughs> hey, babe. Uh Oh, it's great, uh, great uh, to think about all the uh, all the good days and uh, all the fun uh, back in the seventies. Yeah, and, and you know the the thing I was just talking about. You you can you can back me up on that, like the uh, the wiring nightmare of of M Frog and Utopia. Oh yes. yes. <laughs> well, well, I have to say that the first uh, the first time I saw Utopia, it was on the opening night of the first Utopia 2 tour, and it was in Miami. It was uh, the 1st of March in 19, uh, oh, God, 1974. Was it 74, and really? 74, and I remember, uh, <clears throat> you know, being something of a, of a newbie uh, Todd fan and seeing, a, a, you know, a whiz behind the controls in the room during the sound check, and I walked up and I said, are you Jim Lowe? <laughs> and, <laughs> And he said, no, I'm John Holbrook. And, All right, okay. Well, you know, I didn't know John, uh, John's name at the time. But uh, I was interested by watching him after the sound check going up with a soldering iron to <laughs> M-Frog's setup <laughs> and trying to, trying to fix everything in right. this massive uh, synthesizer setup that he had. Right. And, 
It, well, I met uh, uh, M. Frog that night, and we became uh, fast friends. And uh, it, in the in the months that followed, uh, I got to know John, and um, actually was uh, quite interested as the years went on to realize that John was really the um, the hands-on man uh, behind all of the uh, M. Frog recordings. Uh, right. Who, did so much um, into all the guitar playing and uh, quite a bit of the synthesizer programming and so forth. But, uh, um, you know, it was just a wonderful time. It was a time when, uh, you know, anything was possible and uh, it was still sort of in the wonderful days when crazy people ran the music business <laughs> instead of bankers. Right. And, uh and you know you could sort of go in and indulge what you wanted to do musically, and it was a it was a really wonderful time. And I'd like to say, um, just for the benefit of the listeners, um, uh, one day in uh, Johnny Levat's uh, house in Woodstock, he played me a uh, quadraphonic mix of the M Frog album. Oh right. <laughs> That was done Jeez. by Jim Lowe. He, he threaded it up on his little quarter-inch uh, TAC quad tape deck, and I sat in the hot seat in the middle of his living room and listened to that. And, John, I, I still want to get into the Bearsville tape archives and grab that. <laughs> okay, well, well, uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to see. I, I don't have direct access, but we can see if uh, we can have a look. Yeah, we should, we should, you know, in these days of surround sound uh, re-releases and so forth, Right. <laughs> there should be there should be some way to get that out to all of the uh, well-heeled uh, Japanese friends that we uh, have right. who would would like to do that. But but I I, I want to give a great tribute to John because uh, I learned so much from him. Uh, I was in a band uh, shortly thereafter called WKGB, a guitar synthesizer uh, duo, that uh, uh, John produced at Bearsville Records. Uh, in 1980, and uh, I learned so much from John. And uh, there was, uh, and, and I also want to say about the uh, the uh, voice in uh, sing ring and the glass guitar. I think you owe a debt of gratitude to Stan the Man Unwin <laughs> on, on Ogden's Nutcon Flake. That's that's what that always reminded me of. That great Small Faces album. Right, there's another connection. There's another sort of like link too, which is uh, um, um, the Pixies on um, in in one of the Pink Floyd things. It was like a bunch of picks. Oh, yeah, yeah. About oh, oh, yeah. What was that? Oh, God, I can't remember. It was, it was on like uh, Amagama, right? Right, and it was I like a little sort of sound collage, and they were all like little sort of sped up little Pixie voices right, in a right. in a cave, you know. Uh, Another great, uh, right, uh, uh, grooving in a pick, as I guess. Right, right. Right, right, yes. Another great uh, EMS uh, band, right? Right. John, uh, you know, was uh, was the general engineer at a company called EMS in uh, England, which is the English uh, synthesizer pioneer company uh, that was happening sort of at the same time as Moog here in America, and uh, uh, Brian Eno and Pink Floyd and a, a lot of all the Europeans used EMS equipment, and that was what Todd rather favored uh, at that time, if you look in the... Well, uh, well of course, that was a lot, anything. Hmm. a lot of that was to do with the fact that, you know, Jean-Yves, uh, uh, you know, M-Frog brought EMS stuff with him 
from from England. So um, I think that was sort of the introduction. So the other thing I was going to mention too was that they, besides sort of synthesize regular synthesizers, they made um, a guitar processor called the High Fly, yeah, um, cool. which which is now sort of incredibly collectible, I think. Um, but I just was looking earlier on some YouTube footage of Todd playing. Uh, um, uh, you know some some of the stuff from Sing Ring and the glass guitar right. with the uh, with the uh, Ank guitar, and you can see that there's a synthy high fly right behind him. Um, so he, I, I don't remember that, but he must have been using it on that tour. When we went up, when we were up at Todd's house uh, recording the last Labatt album, which probably most of the people listening don't know about the uh, the on Voyage album. Yeah, which is a great, you know, if you, you John, you want to put one of those up for a hundred dollars on eBay, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I have it. I don't know if I have, have any left, but anyway. Well, I'll have to bang out a few copies then. We'll uh, we'll get them up there. But uh, I remember when uh, we were up there uh, working on those sessions, going to make tea, and seeing uh, Todd's broken high fly sitting in the kitchen sink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that could be. <laughs> if, on, if only, uh, if only it would be uh, put up on eBay. That would be. Uh, oh yeah. But anyway, I just want to, uh, you know, share with all your listeners, uh, you know, my great affection for John and his uh, great work, and uh, how much I learned from him, uh, looking over his shoulder all those years, and and uh, Labat too, of course, he was a great mentor, uh, but. Um, uh, what a wonderful time it was uh, in the uh, early mid '70s, and uh, I just want to, you know. Yeah, well, it was great to, to, uh, to all of you. Well, great. Thanks, thanks for calling in, and yeah, thanks for calling in, Dennis. Yeah, man. Talk to you soon. Thank okay. You, Cheers. Cheers. Bye bye. I I was just actually going to ask who that was because I think I was talking at the time when he said who he was. Uh, Dennis Kelly. Okay. Dennis Kelly, you know, like he said, he was, um, uh, he had a band called WKGB, which, uh, you know, was a, did, they didn't, they didn't do more than a, an EP, I think, but they were an interesting electronic kind of a band. Um, but he was always a, a one of the sort of synthesizer uh, people, you know, he was an early synthesizer adopter, so, and he was, a, uh, uh, we were talking about these EMS synthesizers you know he was a a user of the ems uh synthesizer. in fact i think he worked for the american part of the company for a while uh dennis is probably now now he's gone we can't ask him but i think he think he did the american todd or the uh, the american the american uh distributor of ems synthesizers back, ah, okay. back in the day but um all right and what was the name of the album that you guys were just talking about um there's an album the last, uh, it's not under the name of um, M. Frog. It's um, the title of the album is En Voyage, and it's under the name of the artist name of De Rossi. Um, but it's it is uh, Monsieur Frog, M. Frog. Okay. And uh, it was on a, I forget what, you know, if it was a real label or just sort of like a made-up label. But uh, I don't think you're going to find it on Amazon. You know, it's like. Something you might have to track down. Like Dennis says, maybe he'll burn up a few and we'll sell them on eBay. You know. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, now we got another caller. If you don't mind, I'm sure I, we need to move on through these. Yep. 
see. This is area code 201. Are you there? I'm here. This is Dave calling. Hi, Dave. Hello. Hi, Dave. How are you? John, I wanted to just uh, ask you a couple questions. One is I think your listeners should know that you've also been a recording artist on Bearsville Records under the name Brian Briggs. If oh, that's correct. Right. And <laughs> I remember living in Los Angeles, and one of the tracks on your first album was a big hit on, at that time, a fledging alternative rock station by the name of KROQ. Right. And I would love for you to comment on that. And then also, you mentioned before about uh, your work with Steve Hillage, and I consider uh, L, uh, the Hillage album that you worked on, uh, one of Todd's best productions. It's one of my favorite albums that uh, he did. It had Utopia as the band on there. And on the back cover, it says, Extra Engineering and Invaluable Aid, John Holbrook, on the back of the album. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about uh, your experiences with the L Sessions and also your recording career as Brian Briggs. <laughs> sure, I'll, I'll try. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't recall too much about the Steve Hilly Sessions, but I'll try. Um, the, the Brian Briggs thing was came about, um, you know, I was uh, basically engineering and producing uh, various projects at Bearsville Records um, in the late 70s. And uh, uh, one day, you know, uh, um, Ian Kimmett, who was, uh, worked, worked also at, as a sort of, um, I guess he was really an A&R person at, uh, mm -hmm. at Bearsville. He said, you know, you, you do all this stuff. Because he'd seen me, uh, you know, doing doing other things besides engineering, you know, playing guitar parts on people's tracks and stuff. So he said, why don't you do a record, you know? And um, and it was at the same time also the, of the sort of punk, the punk explosion in England. Um, there was a sort of sense of energy, I think, about the uh, that that era. Um, and, and it might also have been, you know, a little bit of the fact that I'd... Um, you know, been in the states for a few years. A kind of a bit of sort of uh, homesickness for uh, for in England. But anyway, I think that was the inspiration. You know, sort of Ian saying, you know, oh, go, why don't you try one? And and just you know, listening to all these um, fun things coming out of England at the time. Um, so I just went in the studio and started cobbling something together, mm -hmm. and. Uh, Tried to have some fun with it, and uh, and uh, came up with the first Brian Briggs record, which was and a lot of people get it wrong, but it, the the title of the record is Brian Damage, not Brain Damage. Um, and uh, you know, we you know the K Rock thing was was kind of a surprise. Somebody said, you know, you got to you're, you're like in heavy play on K Rock, and it actually became kind of a staple, I think, because that was the beginning of that. The sort of early years of that of that format, whatever that absolutely it was the uh, one of the first alternative radio stations at the time, right? And uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that they put it on a compilation. I think that some years ago they did a compilation of the sort of classic K rock tracks, mm -hmm. and I think I think uh, See You on the Other Side went on that. Um, and then I went on to do a second uh, Brian Briggs record, which was sort of slightly different. Um, Called Combat Zone, where I tried to do it kind of with a uh, like a with a rhythm section, with a like a band kind of idea, which was not necessarily my forte. Um, but we had a we had we had a go at it, and um, 
there's a, I think we did a fairly good version of uh, Jimi Hendrix Crosstown Traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was some other uh, oddball originals, but um, but you know I think the the first album was more you know well received, right. and uh, it was you know it was sort of like a fun side project really, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Brian Briggs was sort of like a character, like a, a stage name that you know I could pretend I was somebody else, <laughs> right. um, and uh, in fact we actually had. Uh, the, re- the the name Brian Briggs, just by the by, came out of um, this band that we, a uh, bunch of people that lived in Woodstock at that time, we got together occasionally on weekends to play like old rockabilly kind of uh, early rock kind of stuff, um, known as the uh, Falcons. And, and it was that same time period where you had like Sid Vicious and Captain Sensible and all of that. So it was right. Johnny. It became Johnny Average and the Falcons, and everybody took a name. You know, everybody took a a sort of wacky moniker. name, mm-hmm. a moniker, and uh, I ended up with Brian Briggs. Um, right. But so that was that was that. Um, on the Hillage thing. Um, I think we spent quite a lot of time, you know, I wish I could, re- I don't really have a strong recollection. I know we spent quite a bit of time with with Steve working on his his stuff because he, he did a lot of stuff with sort of ambient um, guitar textures and stuff, which Todd had no patience for, I think. You uh-huh. know, he was just sort of ha- probably happy to let us get on with it. So I think we spent hours of just sort of cooking up some of these uh, guitar textures and stuff. Um, uh, what else do I remember? Don um, Cherry was on that album. Yeah, no, that I don't remember. That may that may have been a recording session that I wasn't at. Mm-hmm. He may have just come in one day and done something, and um, I may or may not have been around. I don't remember specifically. But it was uh, interesting because it had a cover of Hurdy Gurdy Man by Donovan. It's all too right. much. Beale's track, George Harrison from Yellow Submarine, and just the arrangements and production, everything are superb on that album. And it was the album that really propelled Steve Hillage to notoriety in the U.S. after having just a cult-like status in the United States. Right. Yeah, and I think it was, uh, you know, uh, probably a fortuitous sort of meeting of the minds. I think I think Todd kind of, um, my, my sense is, and I, I, I could be wrong about this, my sense is that Todd was fairly sort of... Um, Hands off. He, he, you know, he let Steve do what he wanted to do. And apart from getting, you know, when they got the uh, the basic tracks recorded, but when they started adding things and and you know Steve do, doing his his stuff, I think Todd let let him do what he wanted to do. So, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I I have to say that my my I'm a bit sketchy on that one. <laughs> let me quickly ask you something real quick. Know anything about the whereabouts of an artist you worked with named Elizabeth Barracloff? On ah, records. Uh, you know, I personally don't um, stay in touch with her, but but my friend Ian Timmett, who I just mentioned, um, who also worked at Bearsville, I think he uh, he does stay in touch with her, and I'm not quite sure where she's living now, but she's still still around. Um, not sure what she's doing exactly either, but um, you have to ask Ian that. Well, unfortunately, we haven't got him on the line. 
Well, I thank you so much for the time <laughs> and uh, also the recollection, particularly about Brian Briggs. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank, well, thanks for reminding me, too, because I, I think I would have forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again. All right, thanks. Hey, thanks for calling in. Thank you. All right. Okay, well, that was interesting. Man, they're yeah. bringing up all kinds. People are doing their research on you. We're digging all kinds of stuff. Yeah, and our other host, Doug, has finally come back from break. <laughs> Doug, are you there? I am. Where have you hey, been? What's up with this finally? <laughs> yeah. Hey, John, how are you doing? I've been listening. It's been great. Yeah, so That's far that. so good. we got some got, got some good good questions, good callers. Yeah, love the accent, too. <laughs> You know, we've had Improv on the show before, actually. Oh, I think you did have him. You did, cause I think we talked about that. You said that you got him on uh, not too long ago. Yeah, he was quite interesting. Um, yeah. It was a good show. And there was a, y'all were talking about Utopia earlier, Mark One with Frog. And Dave, David Mason was on in that group for a little while. We had him on last well, a couple, well, last week, I think it was. And he was the keyboardist, and, and Frog was, a, I guess, synthesizer. Is that what y'all called him? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that that was the first in, in, in uh, incarnation of Utopia, I guess. And I was kind of curious, you'd mentioned the, the Mark II group, which I, uh, some of the folks that had the privilege of seeing the early group said that was probably one of the better ones. You just had uh, stacked and packed with great musicians. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, they, it was um, it was a, quite a band. Oh, Kevin Elman was a drummer, too. I forgot mm-hmm. to just remember him. Um, all amazing players. And... Um, uh, you know, and it was a big band with you know the two keyboard players, um, and uh, you know bass, drums, and guitar, and and M Frog. So it was quite a quite a stage. Um, but uh, but yeah, you know, it, it, I, I'm not sure what to add to that. But yeah, uh, did they have three keyboardists at one time? Oh, you know, Roger came in with. Well, right, yeah, you know, Roger came in, but I think that was after John Eve left. So it was more, it was sort of a transition there where uh, John Eve wasn't doing it anymore, and Roger sort of took the took the extra seat, the spare seat, as it was, as it were. And then, um, then you know, obviously, then when they went to the next uh, Utopia, it was just just him and uh, and Chasm and Willie. Right. So it was it was sort of that was a transitional one. I don't really remember when that happened, but um, it it was either it was uh, I'm not sure. I guess it was probably a whole tour, but I, I don't remember which one. Yeah, it was to, as towards the end of the uh, the big the big Utopia, I guess. So you mentioned that you had played in a band with Improv. What instrument do you play? I guess my main. Well, I don't play much anymore, but uh, I still keep a few guitars around my main thing is guitar and um and then uh second to that i suppose is sort of like two finger keyboard <laughs> I, I can get my way around a keyboard um the thing is you know i i don't know how how many of the listeners are uh, you know know what goes on in recording studios but you know there's, there's a whole lot of cheating that you can do but these days um with the technology like even if you can't play that well you know you can uh you know put down a few notes and then sort of straighten them up and it, it, before long it sounds like you actually know what you're doing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, I, you know, with the synthesizer thing, I I, uh, 
I was involved in that and, and uh, started to pick up a little bit of keyboard stuff. Um, but still, my main thing is guitar, I guess. Yeah, that, you're right about how how the uh, there's ways you can manipulate things. I mean, you know, the the um, I guess for lack of a better term, fake drums or machine yeah. drums you have you can record with, and yeah. computers, Reason, and all these different things. Yeah. But I was you're going to be the, probably the perfect person to answer this question because we we get a lot of different opinions on Improg. We like Improg. He was a great interview and he was a really nice person. But his contribution as far as a musician and this whole thing you were talking about where everybody was tied into his synthesizer, I mean, what what exactly was his role musically, and, and how how much did it, um, you know, what kind of impact do you think it really had at the end of the day? Uh, well, I mean, uh, I think it was sort of conceptually an interesting idea, um, maybe hard to pull off in the context of... of uh, of that particular band, but you know the idea. It was more the idea of treating the sounds of. of it's more that sort of Brian Eno kind of idea where um, it wasn't so much about like a little sort of whiny uh, Moog synthesizer, but uh, using you know the electronics to manipulate regular instrument sounds into something a bit more uh, exotic or, or different, you know. So I think conceptually it was an interesting idea. You know, in in reality or in 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 effect, it may not have achieved what they had in mind or what you know. I think I think Johnny even Todd kind of cooked cooked it up. You know, um, but it, it was uh, I think it was a you know it was a good attempt <laughs> to try and do something like that. Um, and uh, you know, for the average listener, you know, or the average fan. They're probably more concerned with seeing Todd and and hearing the songs, um, and uh, you know whether you know a given sort of keyboard solo went wanga 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 or wingy wingy wingy. It doesn't really matter. But, uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, maybe maybe it was ahead of his time, or maybe it was not ever supposed to be the time. But I mean, so he he was though. It was more the concept than than the person. I mean, was Infrog? Is he really uh, at that time? Was he really a gifted musician with this type of equipment or was it just something they were messing around with and he was buddies with Todd so they were trying to come up with some kind of way to incorporate him in there yeah I think he was you know no I mean in a, as a depends what you mean by gifted musician he's you know in the conventional ter, in the conventional terms I'd say no uh, you know he was he's it was a, a a thinker more than a musician he wasn't he wasn't like a, a virtuoso of you know keyboard or any of that, although he was, you know, pretty interesting uh, manipulator of the of the knobs. Um, so I, you know, what can I say? I think he was uh, you know a um, creative and innovative uh, user of electronics in a in a rock band concert context. Um, but I wouldn't call it you know no, I wouldn't say he was a uh, you know, a musical uh, prodigy like um, you know most of the guys in the band. But you know, but he was he had a good uh, he had a good shtick going. You know, yeah, he could turn and it up to eleven. He could turn it up to eleven, and he also had you know he had the good frog green frog costume. Green frog you know, <laughs> exactly. Speaking of, there's um, a video on YouTube, Black Mariah. I believe it was a TV performance. Were you involved in any of the TV performances with Improg and some of the guys? 
You know, the w- I vaguely remember that we did a like a um, like a Don Kirshner's rock concert or one of those. I do remember because I remember being in the control room of the uh, of the TV studio, um, and it was one of those weird things where you weren't sort of supposed to be touching the knobs because it was uni- union. <laughs> so I'd, I'd be sort of hovering over the guy and go like, "Yeah, more of that. Yeah, turn that up. You know, sort of." Um, <laughs> Uh, but I, you know, I don't know if anybody has a copy of that. I, I, I didn't look at uh, at YouTube on that, but uh, yeah, it's on there. Uh, that was probably, and uh, there's, I noticed some of the other ones today that I, when I was looking were from um, a show, I guess a show at Rock Palace in Germany. Um, but that was a bit later on, I think. But the early, you know, the, I guess the earliest one I remember, I think, was Don Kirshner's rock concert. Hmm. That's probably the one. Yeah. Yeah. Do we? So, is there a tape of that? So somebody got a tape yeah, of that on YouTube. If you probably, I don't know if it will show up if you search in Frog. If not, you can just try Todd Rundgren Black Mariah, and it'll right. show up. But, the, but Frog had the green hair, and it's it's on there. <laughs> See the whole deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there wasn't too many bands at that time that were traveling with you know like a uh, a fashion stylist. You know, like <laughs> yeah, the, the, with Nicky uh, Nichols, who was uh, Nicky Nichols was sort of the on on Call uh, you know, uh, costume costumer and uh, style uh, stylist. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you if you if he was around it during those times. Oh yeah, I mean Nikki Nikki was around as I remember uh, for most of that that tour, the, the you know the Mark II Utopia mm-hmm. stuff, where where you know they came out with. Uh, well, at least Todd and, and Frog had the uh, sort of skin-tight costumes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's funny now when I when it, you know when you look at this stuff now, um, I, ha- I had to have to say this, and, and uh, I hope nobody takes offense. But when I see some of this stuff now, like on YouTube, and you know, since that stuff was back, whenever it was. Since that time, of course, we've been and gone through uh, um, Spinal Tap, and you know, I could, a lot of times I look at this stuff and I can't help but sort of like what, see it through the filter of, of Spinal Tap, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the sort of at, at attempts at, at uh, stagecraft and stuff. I, you know, sometimes I also almost expect to see, you know, the, uh, the Stonehenge coming down, <laughs> the minute the Stonehenge coming down. You know. Well, they said um, the pod was based on a, a true story from Frog. Oh really? Yeah, he got the pod. Like, yeah, the pod, the pod that uh, in the movie. The apparently yeah, yeah. The pods for for Utopia and, and uh, uh, Infrog couldn't get out one time or something. Yeah. You know that is possible. Jeez, gosh. Uh, yep. They tried to do the spacesuits for a couple shows. You know they had motorcycle helmets on. The cell right. Pod. It's they did some pretty weird stuff. And they had you know Moogie said they painted this piano like or they painted the instruments like vegetables one time. Um, you know, they all colored their hair. You know, the, the, one of the sales brothers had the skunk hairdo, another was pink, I think. They did some pretty wild stuff that definitely had to come in a spinal tap. Yeah, well, I think so. I mean, I, you know, and I remember, I swear that, you know, the scene in Spinal Tap where they're backstage with the food and the guy saying, you know, the bread to the wrong size, <laughs> yeah. I swear that was from Utopia. Like, I swear I saw that scene in the, in the dressing room somewhere. <laughs> that's probably true, because, Todd, that, that's one of his writer requests is some, you know, deli tray. <laughs> right. That could be it. That could be where that came from, yeah. And I don't yeah. know about the, the funny one to me is when the, uh, 
the girlfriend comes in, you know, starts yeah, trying yeah. to run the band with no experience whatsoever, which is very common, I think, in a lot of businesses. You know, you have you go to a doctor's office and the, the wife is the office manager, but has no clue what she's doing. But that's, right. uh, you know, it couldn't be Michelle because that was before her time, so maybe it was Dean or Dibby <laughs> or somebody, you know, I don't know. But that's uh, that's a classic <laughs> one. And I can see Todd and Utopia maybe trying to come up with an album cover that was offensive. <laughs> of course, right, I right. that, you know, but yeah, I think you're onto something there. <laughs> well, then, and, well, then, you know, of course, but you know everything is so it's like it's this before spinal tap and after spinal tap you know it's like uh uh I, you know and it was pre- i guess it was even for that time it was sort of uh kind of out there um uh you know stylistically you know and the fashions and stuff you know it was it, it was pretty out there for an american band mm-hmm. like you know you expected more of that stuff from english bands you know mm-hmm. Well, you know, back then, too, uh, I've heard of Bootleg from 73. It was C.A.W. Post, and it was the first Utopia group. And, and at some point there, Todd makes fun of um, his hit songs, which were at the time, uh, We Gotta Get You a Woman, Hello, It's Me, and I think I Saw the Light, maybe. There was three he did real quick, you know, and he's kind of like, yeah, hey, I'll play the hits for y'all, and he's just kind of, We Gotta Get You a Woman, you know, and then he moves right. to the next one or whatever. I mean, back then, when you when you were touring with Utopia, were they playing some of that some of the hits, or were people yes. even as far yeah, as he, going, you're not playing what we want to hear type deal? Well, yeah, he actually um, did a more, slightly more elaborate uh, medley um, in the middle of the show, uh, I remember, because, um, you know, I was running the sound out in front in the audience, and I had to trigger, he had a backing track. He'd made up a, uh, like an edited backing track of the medley of, of hits. So basically, you know, the, the band kind of went off, and he just did it with uh, just him solo and uh, and the backing track. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, he sort of uh, uh, and he made a bit more. He didn't. It wasn't quite such a throwaway thing. You know, he uh, he made a bit more of it. Um, and uh, you know, he got to sort of like go go shake hands with people in the audience, and I don't know. Mm-hmm. Sort of do that stuff, but that was that was sort of like a middle of the set uh, sort of uh, medley that he used to do. Mm-hmm. Kind of give everybody I think, a break, huh? I guess to kind of give everyone else a break. Give everyone a break, and I think because like you like you said, you know, people wanted to hear the hits, but he wasn't. He was sort of in utopia mode and wasn't didn't really want to play the hits, but uh, felt that he had to do it. You know, yeah, want to do the prog rock. Yeah, what were, the, what were the crowds like? I mean, how many how many people would you estimate were going to those shows back then? Oh, well, I you know it seems to me that we were probably pl- playing a lot of three thousand seat kind of theaters, wow. you know, um, a few few festivals, but mostly sort of two and three thousand seat gigs, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, um, you know, like I said, a few uh, a few a few festivals. Was that the first time you had done front of house, or were you real experienced? Yeah, yeah, it really was. Um, I mean, I'd gone out when I first came over from this, from England. Um, I I went out on a tour. Uh, I did I did uh, front of house for um, some other Bearsville acts. It was uh, Paul Butterfield um, and some other people. I think Bonnie Raitt was on that tour, mm-hmm. and uh, so I, that was my first sort of go go around, and then. You know the Utopia tours were the real uh, uh, full-on, you know, uh, pretty heavy schedule kind of tours, and it was it was actually 
it was actually I think it was a good experience for me like to to see what what was out there in America. You know, you come from England, you think America is New York, but it's, uh, you know, then you realize that there's a whole bunch more to America than New York. You know. <laughs> yep. Well, I gotta ask when you were doing the Utopia. We got some callers on hold, so we're gonna get you on just a second. I, I gotta ask this question though, because it's it's something that. Uh, we talked to Chris Anderson about a little bit, and uh, he said he had some, but I haven't got anything from him. The, uh, did you do any soundboard recordings or have any recordings of these shows? Uh-huh. <laughs> Look out. Doug's going to be coming after now. <laughs> well, no. The thing is, I don't personally have any. Um, we did get into the habit. Uh, Todd you know, usually liked to have me record, um, and it probably would have been to a cassette, um, Every show, so he could, in case he wanted to check something or see the how how bad a job I was doing on the mix. <laughs> um, so those tapes, those cassette tapes, could be anywhere. I have no idea. They're probably you know just destroyed or disappeared. I, I that I don't have them. I don't you know I didn't yeah. keep them. But you so. guys did record the shows, huh? All of them. Oh yeah, yeah. Most of them were there was a uh, I I would have made a board tape on cassette. Um, I, I'm sorry, but uh, I think they may be lost. They may be lost <laughs> to the world. Worries. Yeah, we have plenty of recordings. I think we're good. But yeah, okay. it's nice to hear some more. You never know. They, uh, well, well, if I ever find one, I'll let, I'll let you know. That'd be awesome. I'll have to go buy a cassette player. Well, I could just send it to Pippi. She's got one in her car. But yeah, that would be. <laughs> we would. Uh, we'd love to hear some of that stuff. There's there's actually some older Utopia. What what years what, what year were you with them? What was the well, year? I guess that would have been. Like Dennis said, the first gig he remembers going to was 74. So I guess I started in 74, and I must have gone through like 76, uh, maybe into 77, mm-hmm. maybe uh, so something like that. Okay, I got you. Mm. Well, now, wait a minute. Uh, now, I think I saw on your resume, though I guess it could have been recorded earlier, you did do some work on the Adventures in Utopia records that came out in 79. Uh, that could be. I mean, it, it it wasn't as if I wasn't around. I was I was doing stuff at Bearsville. You know, it's recording, uh, working in the studio there. So it's possible, um, you know, that I did work on that project. But you know, I I don't think I was going out on the road at that point. Right. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we uh, why don't we take a caller? Uh, this is the same area code we had before. I don't. It could be your friend Dennis listening in, but. Let's make it clear. Is, uh, who is 908? It could be Dennis again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just here to fill in some blanks. Yeah, yeah, fill in the blanks. Okay. All right, well, the first thing I want to say is in in terms of um, Jean-Yves uh, and what he added to the uh, to the equation, I think the, uh, the first place you would look is uh, A Wizard of True Star and to look at... Um, what he added there in terms of the the it was never about virtuosity i don't think i think as uh, i think john's right i mean i think it was about um what he added uh technically and texturally and if you look at a wizard of true star and you look at um sunset boulevard like the guitar solo on sunset boulevard um and you look back uh at uh, what utopia were doing on stage at that time you would hear I don't want to get too technical for our listeners, but uh, EMS had a wonderful thing called a pitch-to-voltage converter, which um, 
let, let the synthesizer follow the uh, guitar. It was like a sort of good guitar synthesizer, and you'll hear that on that track and on a couple of other tracks on that record. And that was the kind of thing, you listen to the Utopia theme on the Utopia album, uh, which is a live recording, you'll hear that same thing um, where the guitar is being treated. And that's kind of that was kind of Jean-Yves' thing. And I remember after Jean-Yves had left Utopia, seeing Todd in uh, Boston on I guess it was the raw I guess it was the raw uh, tour, yeah. And saying to Todd, so you know Jean-Yves, like you know Roger's in here now, and Jean-Yves did what he did. Like, what's the difference? And Todd saying, well, Jean-Yves, you know, I mean, he doesn't play keyboards. He's not a keyboard player. He's he, you know he doesn't know how to play the keyboard. He was doing treatments and sounds and things like that. Right, right. So it was much more keep. When Roger came in, he was a third keyboard player. Right. So when you listen to another live and stuff like that, and something's coming and all that sort of Moog sequencer type stuff, that was Roger's thing. He didn't get into treatments. By that time, Todd was, you know, if I want treatments, I'll do it with my with my high fly and and you know that was that was great but it was a very different you know you get a different uh, if you listen to uh the live track on Todd Grunter's Utopia then you listen to another live you get the the you know the difference and as far as I laughed when you were talking about Todd playing the hits on the uh on the first Utopia 2 tour I remember there was the first date on the tour in Miami, first of March of '74, and people were screaming in the audience, you know, you know, Leroy, (laughs) Leroy, and Todd was like, "No, Leroy, I'm not playing it. No, no." I I heard, yeah, I heard a request for that Sunday night at the gig. I couldn't believe it. I was like, "You got to be kidding me!" I always hear "Hello, it's me," but I haven't heard that one. And then somebody else requested it. A week later. I saw you guys. I was on spring break. I came home to New Jersey, and I saw you at uh, Kane College in Union, New Jersey. And by that time, Todd had had enough, and right in the middle of the icon, <laughs> he did one chorus of you got to get, we got to get you a woman. Yep. <laughs> Where was that? Where was that? It was, at, uh, Kane, it was at Kane College in Union, New Jersey. It was... Uh, that would be, I think, like March 10th, 74. Uh, yes, yeah, so I got a 73. It was in uh, May, CW Post, and he did that. He did a quick, yeah. we got to get you woman. So, yeah, those are legendary because he never, I don't think he's ever performed that song live. Yeah, he had just, he had gotten fed up with people yelling at him, yeah. uh, and he just decided to, to go for it. I have a, a couple of great pictures of, uh, of that show, and I have a bunch of pictures of the, uh, of the uh, opening date on the tour in Miami, a bunch of pictures, which I, uh, did I put them up on my MySpace page? Might be myspace.com backslash Deke the Beachcomber. I'll make sure I put them up there for uh, Deke, uh, D-E-K-E, Deke the Beachcomber. I'll put them up uh, presently. But, uh, yeah, our resident uh, computer Geek uh, wants us to make sure that uh, it's forward slash, not backslash. On, on the, that uh, I think it's, uh, well, what's the... Uh, it took I, us about 20 shows before you got onto us, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, Dennis, I get it wrong every time. That's okay. Just want you, you know, you miss one, try the other. That's okay. It's, hey, Dennis, right. I, got a, I got a question for you. Um, you. You seem to me that you are a big fan of the prog rock and the uh, the more... 
keyboard synthesizer kind of albums with Todd. Would that be correct in that assumption? Well, you know, to be frank, I was a drummer when I got into synthesizers. So Brian Eno and Frog were guys that really appealed to me as opposed to the Keith Emerson type guys. I was more into the crazy sounds and treatments than I was the keyboard guys. So, But I had some, you know, interactions with some of the keyboard guys in this part of the country, so... Yeah. What's, your favorite, what's your favorite Todd album? Wizard of True Star, hands down. Okay. That's what I thought. All right. Good deal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very predictable that way. Yeah, yeah. Right, well, yeah. Up, now, Johnny, and I'm glad we got into the Brian Briggs business, because that, uh, that was a wonderful time. Oh, i got to tell you, another little trivia, uh, um, Doug. Mm-hmm. Um between me and Dennis was when I did the Brian Briggs project uh, and I had there was a song on there called Nervous Breakdown mm-hmm. which is actually an Eddie Cochran tune that I you know did an arrangement on and that got played that got played a fair bit on the East Coast you know the other uh, the one that the other gentleman was talking about was um, another song from the same album that, that did something on the West Coast with K-Rock but, but uh, Nervous Breakdown uh, got played on the East Coast, and uh, uh, Dennis introduced me or hooked hooked me up with Uncle Floyd. Yes. I don't know if you, I'm not sure if you're familiar with who that is. Yeah. But there was it was a local TV show out of New Jersey, uh-huh. uh, sort of like a variety show, uh, very sort of low um, production value, um, sort of public access TV kind of show. But all at that time. Correct me if I'm wrong, Dennis, but like all the big new wave bands were going on that show. David Bowie went on that show. Yeah. Oh, it was it was all the rage. That's right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so Dennis, I think you got me on there somehow. Yes, yes. We uh, got a, WKGB was on there twice, and we right. got Brian Briggs on there with uh, with uh, Shane Mundane. Shane Fontaine. Yeah, I had I had a I had a fake backup band on the Uncle Floyd show, <laughs> which was which was Shane Fontaine and uh, uh, Dennis and uh, and Dave. Dennis, you must have been on drums. No, no, I was on Moog playing in the wrong key. <laughs> in the fake band. Well, it was. Did we have a drummer? I don't remember. But it was all just you know miming, uh, miming on the Uncle Floyd show, and uh, and it just brings back the memory and. Uh, one of the things about the Brian Briggs, the first album that I did, uh, was that the, the, the cover artwork was based on Bazooka Bubblegum. So the big sort of red, white, and blue Bazooka turned into Briggs. And um, and so uh, as part of that, we bought like a, a sort of bulk pack of Bazooka Bubblegum to give out to people. And I got presented, after we did the number, and like I spoke to Uncle Floyd, I presented him with this huge, like... Um, some box of, of bazooka bubblegum. He said, "Well, that's great, but we could have used. We would have preferred steak." <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten. Isn't that I, right, Dennis? Spoken like a true Jerseyan. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, those are the days, battle. Johnny. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very good. Hey, so Dennis, did you ever, uh, and, and um, John as well? Did you guys? Did Todd do a Wizard of True Star? Live or a lot of the songs from that live back in your time when you were watching these shows. My my recollection, John, was that the opening half of the show, uh, or the shows that I saw on that uh, early '74 tour, yeah, the first half was was Todd playing to a backing tape, 
and uh, then the band came out. So oh, okay. Maybe out, that, it, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Now, maybe, uh, that, so I was trying to remember, because I, I was saying that I thought it was a middle-of-the-set thing, but maybe yeah. I'm wrong on that. I seem to recall that it opened with international feel and went into, wow. you know, um, you know, Never Never Land, and then it, you know, segged out, and then he did, you know, Wouldn't Have Made Any Difference at the Piano, and so then he did Zen Archer. I have a couple of great photos of him playing that great double-necked SG um, uh, on Zen Archer. And, uh, you got that on your MySpace? Sorry? You got that on your MySpace page? It, it, I'll put it up there soon. I'll put it up tonight. <laughs> yeah, I like the double neck pictures. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, I gave one of those to Todd, which you quite liked, and and uh, and uh, then and unfortunately, I mean, you know, being the kind of guy I am, I was thrilled to hear those songs without the vocals. But I understand that I understand that tape is long lost. Yeah, probably. I, who knows? Yeah. What a shame. I mean, Todd, I, you know, Todd, that, Todd actually had a fire um, at his storage space, I think, at some point. Uh, and a lot of stuff got destroyed. Well, you know, when we were up uh, at his uh, place doing the the uh, some sessions for the uh, Le, uh, Labatt uh, last yeah. album, I remember looking up longingly at the uh, tape library at the two-inch, sixteen-track tapes, all the tapes of a Wizard of True Star, and yeah, odd album. Yeah. Just wondering whether you know I can't get John to change the heads on the twenty-four track to put it on the fifteen, <laughs> so we can listen to some of these songs. Well, right. I heard this rumor. There was a rumor. It even made it on CNN that that Todd had some uh, somebody in the UK had talked to him about doing a Wizard from top to bottom, all the songs, uh, one shot deal in the UK, and then maybe tour with it. Have you heard? Have you heard of this? I'd say. I'd say. You know. He probably. You know. Technically, he could. I just don't know whether you know he, you know, whether he'd think it made sense, you know, like to do. I don't know. Well, you know, it's one of those things. I mean, you know, in today's world, you know, anything, you know, you can lock up anything on stage and you know have backpacks yeah. and all that stuff. I mean, you know, that that's the problem. I mean, the the thing that amazed me when I met all these guys for the first time in 1974 and you know learned about this album that made such an impression on me. I mean, something, anything made a tremendous impression on me just as a fan of pop music. But as somebody who was interested in uh, electronics, A Wizard of True Star, to understand that he made that album in two weeks. John, I mean, you know, do you have any knowledge of that? Is that just a crazy <laughs> rumor? But, you know, th those are the days when, you know, you're in your mid-20s, you're yeah. totally on fire, you're, you yeah. know, you're awake, 20 hours a day. You're living right. on 23rd Street. Yeah. And you know, and you're just on, you're on fire, you know, and you're just yeah. you're recording all the time. And I think that's when uh, Jean-Yves uh, and he were hanging out a lot and and it wasn't all about, you know, he, I mean, on a Wizard, I think a lot of the tracks you can tell which ones he played all the instruments on, but some of them he had the band come in, John Cmos and John Siegler and David Sanborn and those guys. Mm -hmm. Um but, I mean, you know, at that point in your life, you know, it's just a magic time, and you're just, you know, screaming. You know, you, you, yeah. the music's pouring out of you, and, uh, you know, you couldn't stop it if you tried. So, I mean, you yeah. know, what is there? To, you know, it's, it's, it's just a magic time, and it was so inspirational for me yeah. as a 19-year-old to hear that stuff. Uh, it, it just, you know, really lit a fire under me, and... Uh, uh, you know, I'm sure, John, for you too, I mean, you know, it was just a time uh, 
when anything was possible. It was still, as I say, when crazy people were running the music business. Right. And, you know, you didn't have to worry about selling, a, you know, a 5 million units. It was before Frampton Comes Alive. I mean, in fact, I remember having that discussion with Todd uh, years later that, you know, he was saying, well, you know, Frampton Comes Alive, I mean, that changed everything. You know, all of a sudden you yeah. had to, you know, to be a success, you had to sell 10 million units. It wasn't about right. covering your costs. Right. And, um, you know, so it was a wonderful, wonderful time to be a young, uh, creative person with your hands on the wheel and uh, access to the recording studio. And certainly he had proved his uh, mettle with, uh, uh, you know, the band, Engineering Stage Fright, and, uh, you know, the other work that he had done. And uh, it was just, it was magical. And to to be a witness to that as a young person, uh, when, you know, the world was at your feet, it was just, it was great. It was great. Yeah, and have, have Inspired somebody, all of us. Somebody as good as, you know, eventually, I don't know what he was like back then as far as where he was in his career, but, you know, David Sanborn, considered one of the greatest sax players ever, and he was on that album. You know, you mentioned oh. him. I mean, some of the great, great musicians were on those early albums uh, that are still around. It's it's uh, very impressive. Oh, you know, you hear you hear that that solo on Zen Archer. I think that's probably. I mean, it's it's certainly the greatest solo I ever heard David Sanborn play. I mean, I, I listened to that. Yeah. I listened to that yesterday, and it just it just you know, it fires you up so much. And I mean, you know, I would say probably that was one of the tunes that Todd played all the instruments on hmm. on that record. And you know, it's overproduced, of you know, arguably, and you know, it's not. But I mean, you know, what a record! It's just it's just incredible and what was he maybe 25 when he made that record i mean it's just it's fantastic yeah i was just i was just like uh i was terrified i was trying to keep up yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, i was gonna yeah. say i remember I, I do remember just one little thing um dennis you your your memory is so much better than mine but um uh the the original secret sound studio that i believe that he would have recorded most of that stuff in yeah. Was in in New York at yeah. um, at Moogie Moogie Klingman's loft, right? And uh, it was just like pretty uh, pretty makeshift little setup they had. So yeah, it wasn't I, like it wasn't some big fancy you know uh, CBS uh, NBC studio. You know it was like uh, a bit of a sort of rat hole, really. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I never, I never, I was never there, but I saw pictures of it, and it's like, you know, somebody put up a wall with glass, yeah. you know, and there was a mattress on the floor, yeah. and, you know, Frog was there a lot of the time, and they just were, they were, they were young, you know, young yeah. Turks going nuts, and it was, yeah. it was beautiful, it was a beautiful <laughs> thing to behold, and, and, you know, I mean, it was the kind of thing that as a, as a kid, I mean, I was so inspired by, and, um, you know, it was the kind of thing we could, you know, a few years later only, uh, you know, aspire to. But but that was the thing. As a guy who came up on the drums and got interested in the larger picture, the larger sort of sonic picture, to hear what Todd was doing with Johnny's uh, and what Brian Eno was doing, it, yeah. it, it became more of the, you know, sort of the larger sonic picture, as Todd put it, you know, using the, you know, the recording studio as an instrument. Right, and and uh, that's you know that was a great inspiration to so many people. You know they talk about uh, the Velvet Underground. You know that the you know the first album they made may have only sold five thousand copies, but everybody who bought a copy formed a band. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's yeah. the same thing with Todd, I think. Right. For, you know, for a slightly yeah. older generation and people who are sort of more geared toward the electronics, yeah. there were a whole slew of people who were so inspired by that and what Brian Eno were, uh, was doing that uh, you know it, it created a whole uh, new generation of people. Uh, who were involved in music and, you know, who became, yeah. you know, arguably the sort of, uh, you know, the late 70s new wave people. You know? Yeah, well, I've got somebody on hold who was around in the early 70s and I think has you beat because she was influenced at the age, I think, of 13 when she snuck out of the house to go to a show. So I don't there know, you, you guys may know or may not, we've got Lisa <laughs> Paul's on hold. Lisa Percival Valley, what's up? Up oh, here. Oh, did you do that, Mel? Yeah, <laughs> Lisa, I what's up? That. Can you hear me? Yes. Turn it down, Lisa. I muted my computer. What's the matter? There you go. All right, you're Is good. That better? Yeah. Hi. Hi, Mel. Hi. Hi, Doug. Hi. Hi, John. Hi. So my name's Lisa, and um, Lisa. I'm from New York, in case you can't tell from my accent. <laughs> <laughs> and Doug calls me Lisa Paws, because when I talk about my cat's paws, and I pause things on my computer or whatever. He makes fun of my New York accent. But mm -hmm. my real name is Lisa Persevalli, and um, I'm a fan since, like, 1973 I heard of Todd. And then I first saw him in 1974. He played the Shades of Music Festival in Central Park in New York. I don't know, yep. Todd's birthday show. That was my first experience. Nice. And like you, I, I love A Wizard of True Star. That's my favorite album. And after that, I like the old Utopia. I like it all because, I mean, we just uh, I just went to, like, four shows with Mel and Doug. We went to um, Atlanta and Tennessee and uh, where else did we go? Birmingham and Chattanooga. Memphis. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm still going strong in 2009, but <laughs> started in 74. And I, um, I don't know. I, I just like the old stuff the best. I think that's, like, the funnest, the progressive stuff. I just thought that was, like him at his best, but I like it all. But the reason why I'm calling is you were talking about Don Kirshner's rock concert, about where to get a copy. Uh-huh. And um, it's in my list of things to do, but I have a flyer that says it's uh, Bert Sugarman's Midnight Special, and it says it's on this, and all you have to do is go to either call, the number is 888-524-5858, uh, or the website is uh, www.midnightspecial.com. Oh, okay. So um, I, I'm going to get it myself. See, there's and my memory my memory letting me down again. I, I, no, you your know, memory's I, very good, actually. Your memory's okay. very good. Because you know what? You're right about how when he opened the shows, what he came out with. I was at the shows, so I know. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I remember that because I was 14 at the time, and I was like, I was like blown away by it was like a different concert experience than going to see like Led Zeppelin or, you know, back in those days I'd go see like Yes and shows like that. So no, yeah. your memory's very good about <laughs> so far. And uh, also I just wanted to mention, the, uh, the guys know this, Mel and Doug, but I also went to Moogie's um, recording studio because when I was probably about 18, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for a career. So uh, I found out that there was a, um, a class being offered through the new school in New York. And... Um, they didn't tell you who the teacher was or anything, and can you imagine my excitement when I walked in and <laughs> found out who my teacher was? <laughs> it was very strange. So so that's it. I just wanted to give you that information. Very good. Cool. And remind Mel and Doug of all the fun they missed in 74. 
And uh, oh, that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See you, Paul. Thanks for calling. It in. Yeah. yeah, it was fun. It was a good show. Good deal. All right. Talk to you all See soon. You, Bye. 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 She, she lets us know she likes that prog rock time period when, you, when you're around. No doubt about it. So uh, it's too bad you had to miss the Raw tour, though. Everybody says that's the best Utopia tour there was. It's because of all uh, the no, believe, I don't believe it. <laughs> no? Nah, I can't have been as good when I left. Yeah, but you didn't get to see the big pyramid and all that craziness. That's the big pyramid, yeah. Well, but we had uh, we had other things. We had like exploding equipment. That <laughs> <laughs> ended up in sinks. In, inadvertently exploding equipment. Mm. Um, no, but uh, no, I didn't. I didn't get to see that tour. I do remember seeing the pyramid for the first time. Yeah. Uh, when when I got built, you know, and it was like everyone was wondering how the hell he was going to pull that off. <laughs> um, and it was, I think, still, still amazing that he. Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Uh, so it's still amazing that he never like killed himself on that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you watch the video. It's it's amazing walking up there playing guitar at the same time. It's pretty weird. Yeah. 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 I think he, I think he, I, I got I got a sense that it was not that secure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry. What what was Mel going to say? Oh, I was just going to ask you just just quickly tell us about working with Roger Powell as a solo artist when he did the uh, Air Pocket album. Right. Yeah, we did that um, most of that at um, the Bearsville studio, um, and um, all I can say is mostly it was just the two of us in the room. Uh, you know, he had a lot of stuff. Uh, figured out, you know, and uh, either mapped out or actually sort of um, uh, sequenced, you know, like uh, ready to go in his uh, with his uh, his sounds and stuff. And um, uh, what else can I remember about that? Uh, a pretty sort of straightforward session, really. He had it. He kind of knew what he wanted to do, and there wasn't a whole lot of. Um, you know, experimentation. Although I do remember we set up kind of a soundscape at one point with um, a bunch of little speakers. Uh, we put out in the studio um, a bunch of little speakers and fed like random kind of electronic uh, sort of, uh, how can I put it, like uh, ambient nature kind of sound, like sort of alien insects and stuff. <laughs> and uh, we recorded it with one of these... Uh, uh, dummy head microphones, which if you if you listen to it on headphones, you'll, you'll it sounds like things are all around the back of your head. Um, but uh, that was one thing I remember. But other than that, um, you know, and the single he did a um, for a single he did a uh, a cover of the Pipeline, the the instrumental by the Ventures. Um, I don't know if you guys heard that, but um, it was sort of like a the most pop thing that he did on the record, the record company was hoping that he'd come up with some kind of a single. Um, so I remember I remember doing Pipeline. Um, oh, that was about it. Pretty sort of straightforward session. You know, he did his own vocals, and uh, I think it was a drummer came in for a couple of things. And and uh, other than that, it was sort of you know he he was a pioneer with the um, you know getting everything in a, in a digital sequencer, so which it's it's not a tape recorder, you know, it's just a computer uh, memory. So you'd have a lot of stuff figured out and ready to go in the sequencer. So. And you, but you played guitar on on some of it, right? 
couple of a couple of tunes I think I did sort of just the rhythm guitar. Um, uh, you know, it was sort of as much as I could do to keep up because it, you know he's pretty advanced musically. So um, I think it was sort of like I had to uh, stop and start a lot with, <laughs> with the guitar. <laughs> yeah, but um, but uh, yeah, it was it was uh, it was a good time. Yeah, he's he's uh yeah he's definitely um, uh, intelligent in that area and gifted and and uh, probably was he does some pretty interesting things with with the uh, with his albums. He's got a new one out actually though that's just piano, believe it or not. Oh really? Yep. Yeah. Yep, just came out. As a matter of fact, so yeah. uh, Roger's back in business. So yeah, might, I, I was hoping that um, I was hoping that Willie might actually call in because I spoke to him not too long ago. Is that right? Um, and uh, I said, you know, I, I, I mentioned that I'd be on tonight, and uh, I said, you know, I don't know if you're out there, Willie. If, if he's out there, give us a call. Yeah, no kidding. Willie's uh, he's been on the show before, and he, yeah, it would been a good time for him to call. He could uh, promote his new song. It's all about the money. <laughs> have you seen it? No, I haven't seen yeah. it. Yeah, I think it's got. Oh, Mel, have you seen, it's got a little video to it, doesn't it? Or am I... I don't, I don't know. That that came out like last month, didn't it? I don't yeah. know anything about it. It's on YouTube, I think. Yeah, it's oh, all about the money, Willie Wilcox. Yeah, yeah, he's on Facebook now and stuff. He's he's apparently trying to get some uh, get some music out there. Well, he told me he's also trying to do this thing. Uh, I don't. Maybe I should speak out of time. Uh, maybe. Yeah, please. <laughs> well, I, I think he he. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't. I don't want to blow it for him, but I think he's trying to set up this thing of like a um, a jam session. Uh, like reality, Vegas jam session reality show. Cool. Uh, which sounds actually kind of interesting, like getting like different musicians together, people who might not normally play together. Oh, he did right. talk so, a little bit about that, I think, on the show. Oh, he did. Yeah, I thought it was kind of a cool idea, you know, like imagine you get sort of slashed with, you know, some <laughs> rap, some hip-hop guy and, you know, like, I don't know. Kanye. <laughs> yeah, some. Some weird mixture, you know. Clay Aiken, yeah, and Slash. Now, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, D Daryl Hall does a little bit of that now with his show where he's got different musicians come in and they just start jamming. But it's not the same exact concept, but pretty similar. Right. Yeah. right. I think it's, it's sort of like the idea of like them seeing people get together in Vegas, you know, and the personalities, and then and then actually sort of get to do some music, you know. Yeah, yeah. They had that one show where they did the uh, ultimate band, and, they, and it was more about personalities. I think, the music. Right? Yeah, yeah. I saw some right. of that. Uh, yeah. That <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's just that's more drama than music, I think. That was a lot of drama. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think Willie probably has different things in mind. But he was doing some things like he had a theme song for a boxer. You know, he's done a few things since you know leaving Utopia, obviously in the music business, but not necessarily some of his own stuff like this new song. So. Right. But we, you know, we're all interested in seeing him come back and do a Utopia tour, but that's apparently not going to happen. <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. You could come engineer. But... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the old. But that's you know, it's 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 actually scary to think how long ago that is. Um, yeah. You know, um, and it, it actually sort of, you know, it's I don't know, it's just a little freaky to think <laughs> that all that stuff was so that long ago. Time flies. Yeah. You know, we're talking about albums that were out in the early 70s and his influences and still talking about them today as favorites and these type of things. It is. It's it's, it's one thing about Todd's music and, and some of Utopia's, I'm sure, as well. It, it does 
stand the test of time, most of it. You know, yeah, still, I, mean, I think, you know, the thing with Todd was he, he, he could write, you know, he could really write a good tune, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the more prog rocky it got, the less the tunes, less good the tunes were. So, uh, you know, I'm not like um, a major prog rock fan anymore, but, uh, um, you know, I think the stuff where where you've got a strong melody and a, a strong tune is is stuff that holds up. Mm-hmm. You know, like you, you know, like something that's sort of like some elaborate sort of um, you know uh, sweet, like like singing in the glass guitar or something. You know, it's sort of like there's going to be people who love that stuff, but it's I think um, for most people, it's sort of like the songs that people remember. It's funny, you know. I I remember thinking years ago that um, you know a lot of Todd's songs uh, would would work in a uh, in like a Broadway concept. If somebody could come up with a uh, a book, you know, a story that would would link the tunes, because um, and it never happened because he he did do a thing with uh, uh, Joe Papp, I believe. They worked on developing a musical, yeah, a Broadway musical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I thought that he did, I, you know, they should have just done it with his tunes. You know, the same way they did yeah. with like um, with Jersey Boys or one of those. You know, where it's it's like you just use the original material music, um, but link it with a story. You know. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, they did some of his songs on there. Of course, for a lot of it actually was his music, but not necessarily your standard Todd type songs. You know, these were right. for musicals, but that. I still don't, you know, I wasn't around. I don't know what ended up happening with that. I've read some stories. There was just lots of unorganized um, problems, unorganization, or yeah. bad organization problems with the staff that was trying to do this. I don't know if Todd had any, was any, any problem with that. I don't think that was his role, but it's too bad because the music's really good. You know, there is a, an album yeah. of the music, and some of it made it on the album Second Wind of Todd's, and it's, it's great stuff. Yeah. Really good. But, um... So, well, let me ask you, John. What what's on your your immediate horizon? What are you getting ready to work on? Um, well, I'm um, I'm doing some mixing uh, for various people. I, I've uh, uh, I'm working on a uh, project with a band that I worked on uh, worked with uh, a few years ago now, and they're um, looks like they're sort of they kind of broke up and then they got back together again it looks like they're writing songs again uh, they're called the verve pipe out of um michigan yeah yeah and uh so they called me and they're they're working on some stuff and so they're going to be sending it to me to for mixing um which is great i'm happy happy to see them doing some more stuff and um i i'm not sure but it to me the sort of mumblings of rumors that there might be another Brian Setzer uh, album coming along. Oh, really? Mm. Um, but I haven't had any official word yet, so I don't know. They, they said maybe in June, but you know, and they might have, might not. I don't know. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm mixing uh, some other stuff. There's sort of some new artists that uh, uh, I've been working with um, that uh, doing some mixes for. So it's, it's I what I did was about a year ago I set up. A uh, fairly professional, uh, you know, high quality setup in my house. It's not just in one, one of the rooms of the house, but it's, 
you know, so I can do sort of uh, professional level uh, work at home. So that in this sort of day and age, it seems to work for people because they don't have to schlep me, uh, you know, fly me out anywhere or put me up in a hotel or. You know, they just all they got to do is send me the material, and I can work on it, and then send it back to them. Uh, a true work-at-home job. Yeah. So I'm I'm doing more of that. I mean, I still go out if if the job calls for it. You know, I'll still go places, but um, but it's quite comfortable. You know, I got got my family here, and you know, it's nice to be uh, nice to nice to be around the kids and stuff, rather than you know being every job go away somewhere. You know. Sure. Good family time. Well, speaking of, I know it's late where you are. Yeah. I know you got family, and we've only got a couple of minutes left anyway. So okay. it'd be a good time to uh, wrap it up and tell you that we really appreciate you being on. It's been a great show, a lot of fun. We appreciate Dennis and Dave and Lisa calling in. Anybody else who I might have missed? That's uh, real good, interesting stuff. We really appreciate yeah. you being on. Well, it was fun, I, and I, you know, it's kind of uh, good to get my memory jogged too. <laughs> yep, <laughs> always is. Yeah. All right, good deal. All right, we hope to have you on again sometime soon. Thank you so much, John. And I I forgot to mention your website. It's johnholbrook.net, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a a very elaborate website, but it's it's the discography and a little bit of stuff. But, but yeah, well, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks a lot. We appreciate it. Okay. All right, have a good one. See you. All right, everybody, we'll be right back. Live online talk radio for Todd fans. This is RungrenRadio.com. All right, Cruiser Mill, nice work. Good Why show. does that, that little ad from Weevil just cracks me up? Dot.com. <laughs> yep. That's our buddy Weevil, who hasn't yeah. called hey, into listen. the show since the first one. Yeah, what's up? Hey, Doug, a lot of people had trouble getting in tonight, and we're having sound problems at the very, very beginning of the show. Hmm. And... um. We also missed one announcement, so I got a couple things to say in our last minute. Okay, uh, there's a new ish, new uh, thing, new for lack of a better word, new thing on the Kazmstore.com website called Ask Kaz. And if you want to ask him anything, any old thing, and he'll answer it. It's A S K K A S at Kazmstore.com. And then Doug. Uh, the big announcement about what weekend is everyone supposed to hold? <laughs> Labor Day weekend. All right. Rungan Radio Birthday Bash 2 is being worked on. It's going to be off the charts. That's right. That's right. Literally. So hold, hold that long weekend open. There will be more information uh, coming. Yep. Speaking of Rungan Radio gigs, let's close out. See you, Mel. Peace out. Bye-bye. Hi everybody, this is Todd Rundgren and you're listening to RundgrenRadio.com. You are the crown of the crown, my friend. Well, thank you so much for your support.